think we could have a nice fighting match about a certain some movie. And that is Mission Impossible 2. Holy shit. Opening a whole kind of world was there. It pretty much is. It's like the the really heavy hitting drums and the aggressive guitars. It's gonna be a lot of fun. It's going like 120 miles per hour. Yeah, straight towards the wall while piercing your eardrums. Ha! Huh. So welcome to the Flick Lab podcast. I'm Karri and you're Henrik. We are two two dudes who like to delve into a lot of audiovisual stuff, have studied it, have experienced it, have worked in the field as well. And today we're going to discuss about Mission Impossible 2. Henrik. Unfortunately. Henrik, how about a big smile? No? <laughs> well, smiling, sm- smiling is too lame for this movie, which <laughs> wants to be badass. <laughs> Smiley is not badass. Just ask Tom Cruise, who was famous for his smile, to a point where this movie actually references Tom Cruise's smirk. Yeah. But Tom Cruise does not smirk here, because smirking and smiling is not badass. Oh, well, I would say that this is the the last really highly smirking Tom Cruise Mission Impossible movie. And I was even thinking that poor, poor Tom Cruise got offended by the scriptwriters for writing about the grinning like an idiot every 15 minutes because you check out Mission Impossible 3 and, yeah, he's not smirking anymore. Yeah, oh. he's, he's dead. Actually, he most likely got so offended that that's why, perhaps why there, Tom Cruise comes here and does the creepy I'm staring at your windows rapist face all of a sudden. What, what is so what? how 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 psycho he is and unpredictable and dark and dangerous well, and extreme he- you you lost me completely it's the moment when Sean is pretending to be Ethan and mm. there he's he's hugging Maya and he has like that that yeah i i i know what i know what happens in your bedroom stair <laughs> it is absolutely critical for me to come here for no reason at all in the middle of the night. Um, well, it's it's a- absolutely critical to <coughs> tell the only female agent of the team that, yeah, what you have to do in order to mission to succeed is to suck history. <clears throat> so, yeah, John Woo, he is a guy with that big background, as we know, from the Hong Kongese action cinema. And that's how he found his way into the big leagues in Hollywood. Hasn't been in Hollywood, I believe, for quite some time now. Kind of got, uh, probably, from what I've understood, kind of the cast and crew of his surrounding peoples, that kind of like everyone in Hollywood, they sooner or later, they 
gotta go back to their home country because they get tired of the the studio control and the producer control and him doing a three and a half hour long Mission Impossible 2 movie and then the studio says you have to do it in two hours. Ouch. Yeah, uh, closing him off, like physically locking him out of the building so that he can't get into the editing booth. Uh, I heard about that. Is there an actual article about that that says that? I didn't find an actual article, article I'm referencing well YouTube online rumors Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, the, the first rough cut of the film was three and a half hours. Which you can only ask, yeah. like... How boring was that one? No, come on. Hashtag release the woo cut. <laughs> Hashtag pass me the pillow. <laughs> okay, Henrik, just to start this on the right tone, why is this film a masterpiece? Well, to answer that question, it's a masterpiece because... Well, Patrick H. Williams made made a good point that you can basically kind of see the eras of Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible films. Like, every, every portrayal of Ethan mirrors the Tom Cruise's public persona at the time when the film was done. So in the first film, Tom Cruise, when, when he was still kind of, like, he was already in big leagues, he was already rich enough that he can start producing movies. But career-wise, Tom Cruise was still in the moment where he had to work with the best. Like, have best directors, have best co-stars, have best actors that he would co-star with. But in Mission Impossible 2, Cruise's career has hit the peak. This is, I would say, this is peak Cruise. This is Cruise, Tom Cruise as the action god phase, phase of his career. When he was still unharmed... By all the bad publicity that would then follow. Everybody knew that he was into Scientology, but nobody exactly yet knew how hideous it was. Everybody knew that there were some problems in the marriage, but it hadn't yet been leaked exactly how bad that th- those marriages were. So ba- basically at this moment in time, Tom Cruise is somewhat untouchable. And you can see it in the film. And yeah. I don't know. If you are Tom Cruise aficionado, if you want to see like, you know... Tom Cruise's personality and how it mirrors the movies he makes, you know, you know, I, I, perhaps that makes this a masterpiece. Yeah, the well, what you're saying is true. When we get to Mission Impossible Three, I think he's more, first of all, more down to earth with the with the character shape shifts the character of Ethan Hunt once again a notch. And this is like the, the 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 superhero character, unstoppable, and can do all kinds of magical things on the way in Mission Impossible 2. Yeah. But all right, so we are here, finally witnessing this moment. We would, we've been discussing, I've been discussing about doing the Mission Impossible and Mission Impossible 2 at some point. That was like probably 150 episodes ago. So good to be here. And now for. Your revelation why Mission Impossible 2 is a masterpiece. Starting with the pacing. John Woo, he understands the goddamn pacing. Um, he does. He does. Uh, yeah, thank you. So yeah. I, under- I understand Woo likes to have the movie synced with the music and not the other way around. So what Yeah, I mean, he does. Uh, he does. So He does. So the movie has been trimmed further to make the soundtrack more match with the action. And, and boy, does it ever. It most definitely does. 
Yeah, the soundtrack. Unfortunately, the soundtrack is ass. And I also heard that John Woo likes to be locked out of the editing booth. So when it comes to actually, when it comes to, you know, enjoying <laughs> the symbiosis of Olympiskit screaming in your ear and, and seeing some overtly corny action bullshit go hand in hand in beautiful marriage, you can thank the studio and perhaps Tom Cruise, who I've heard was the person who locked John Woo out of the goddamn building. So Maybe. allegedly, yep. So you know we have been talking about this in in some of the previous episodes uh, about you know the studio meddling and the director's artistic freedom and what it means, how much a production suffers because the studio walks over the director. Mm-hmm. And I have made the defensive argument that it's kind of like case by case basis. Like sometimes the end product actually benefits from the fact that the studio forced the director to do something or the, the producers made the final cut, etc., etc. Not always, but sometimes. But it's still not necessarily the right thing to do. And not necessarily the right thing to do. But if you really enjoy Mission Impossible 2, well, you know, well, that there was a building and they had the editing booth and John Woo wasn't anywhere near that booth. So I guess it's like on a silver silver plate you hand me this gift of confirming me being right once again again if we believe believe the rumors could have happened maybe not maybe not but well so- it's kind of well uh, e- even though even though i couldn't find the actual article but it's kind of accepted the official canon and tom cruise and the studio and john Wu himself haven't actually challenged that fact Mm. Like nobody has come out and be like, uh, yeah, that's 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 bullshit. No, John Woo Bosch was in place. In fact, when you look at what happened to John Woo after Mission Impossible 2, mm-hmm. you can actually kind of believe that, yeah, they really did lock him out of the editing booth. Because this is actually a turning point for also John Woo's Hollywood career. His career altogether, Mission Impossible 2. It is, and it may be like... A- Turning point, I don't know, for the better for, for John Woo, but yeah, he did some films in Hollywood still after this one, and Tom Cruise kind of became a big, huge action star, I would argue, after this film, and it was a more successful film than the first one. Uh, it was more successful financially, yeah. I don't know exactly how much it made Tom Cruise an action star. In fact, like, Looking at the the careers from this point onwards, it's quite interesting. Like it, it's an interesting narrative that start perhaps starts to unfold. But coming back to the soundtrack, Henrik. No, what are you talking about? It's phenomenal. It is it is impeccable. When when there's, for example, there's a firefight at the lab, and of course we have the song called or the music piece called injection there that is it's the it's the gold material from Hans Zimmer one of his bests that he has ever written as far as I'm concerned when there's the firefight at the lab the music goes into this super cool techno beat yet so that's not injection yet but when there's the slow mode and the music goes introspective with the injection and it slows down for example 
at the lab when Naya is about to pick up the chimera. When she pumps herself up with that, then the music perfectly reflects the, her emotions about facing death, yada yada yada. And Ethan jumps out of the building, out of the hole, and the music goes down, has a moment of silence, and then Lisa Gerard has that humming voice there, and only humming wind then left, and he jumps out of the building and opens the parachute. That whole scene is a freaking masterclass of, of orgasmic audiovisual entertainment. Yeah, and when the film really wants to point out that it's a blowout tryhard trying to actually be cool, the soundtrack does support it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like, no, I nothing says edgier bullshit more than that. Yeah, I love that. I love that version of the Mission Impossible uh, theme. That's my favorite Mission I, Impossible I have, theme. I, I have no doubts that you do, man. Yeah, it is so balls to the walls. Another example of this whole pacing with the music would be when Naya is wa- walking in Ambrose's pier, slowly approaching him, and they're about to meet again after they broke up, supposedly. Uh, first, you have these great actors, and and to kind of to paraphrase the movie you almost hang on to their every word and gesture in this film. Uh, Dougray Scott has these these eyes that John Woo is utilizing greatly in this scene. Thandie Newton is stunningly beautiful, and he has a pretty expressive face throughout. So the soundtrack then teases us and then showcases this tension inherent here with this sexy, dirty guitar and... Okay, Doc Ray Scott looks in some shots like he's a bit too horny and about to blow up his pants. But but other than that, you know, the slow-mo with the faces, it's one of the fantastic parts of the film. Ambrose then saves the day with with, <laughs> with his scarf-saving super reflexes. I love that. Yeah, I love which... that. It's, it's... Henrik, before you go on a rant about it, uh, I know it's a scene that... Uh, there I say splits the opinion of the audience but what is what is so cool about that scene is just how it looks like how it sounds like that's what I love overall about this film yeah I mean there's nothing more badass and exotic and sensual and erotic and sexy than just in slow-mo grabbing a scarf (laughs) (laughs) like like Luther says it or, or was it the cabbie? That's a man who knows how to give a proper welcome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh my god. It's 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 like there's some, some moments in this movie. I, I can't do that. Like when, when Tom Cruise does the square jump. He, he shows that he's having a pistols in both hands, but he jumps through the wall wall and starts a free fall to to escape from the fucking lab that he has been broken into. Like that, that's that's like once one scene, you know, you need to show that, yeah, you are still carrying two pistols in both hands. And then you have moments like, you know, Ambrose just crapping a scarf. Yeah. They are equally a, badass. It's a moment to behold. You know, it, it's, it, it's most definitely, it's, it's the kind of magic that the fans of Mission Impossible to come in to see, see this movie. Absolutely. I love this Absolutely. kind of... Yeah, yeah. If you look at it from like a plot perspective or what is indeed happening, what the characters are doing, yeah, it's silly. But yeah, that's that's but just... thank, thank, 
thank God the NPCs are there to tell you that no, it's actually really badass. That's it, how you give a proper welcome. It is actually pretty badass. Maybe we should do do like a new version of that in our film someday. <laughs> but the... yeah, yeah, yeah. You get you get the axe or or the shooting and the action stuff, and just have people slowly reaching for scarves. the scarves. <laughs> No, but Henrik, man, this is an audiovisual triumph to me. So if I have, would have to guess what your main arguments are going to be against this movie tonight, it's going to be that first of all, the, the plot is weak and the character decisions don't make sense. And what was the third one? That we have these action scenes that are hyper-masculine alpha bullshit, which is completely over the top. So over the top, in fact, that even your daddies in the audience would, would you know... Kinda cringe. Cringe. Be honest, man. Yeah, but have you seen the shown this movie to your dad? In fact, it's great that you are asking that because when I saw this film for the first time, it was in theater. I went with my, well, that was my stepfather, so to speak, and uh, he's like a guy who is into a lot of dumb shits. Dare I say, dumb action films. And after the film, I was like, oh my god, oh my god, this was amazing. And I was like, I thought it was kind of bad. And I was like, I'm pretty shocked about that thing. And then I went home and one day I showed it to my dad after watching it like 15 times. Dad, 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 let's watch this film. And he thought that uh, it's actually kind of bad. And wow. So ever, ever, ever since your, your childhood, the grown-ups have been telling you that no Mission Impossible 2 success. Yeah. And here you are. If- and as a protest against the world, I actually blew up my stereos watching Mission Impossible 2. <laughs> like I busted them. And, and that's 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 perhaps the most Mission Impossible <laughs> 2 thing that any fan of this movie can do. <laughs> because this movie also really wants to make the case that no, this is a protest against the world. Well, even if you say that the, even the daddies at the audience don't like that, that the characters are imbeciles and... Uh, and the plot is weak. I would be still telling you that you're completely missing the point here. Okay, by all means, what is the point? All right. Mission Impossible 2. And are you ready for it? Here goes. Yeah, go ahead. It is dancing. Because this movie is made by the John Woo Hong Kongese martial arts movie dude, as we know. He understands martial arts. And perhaps by extension, he understands dancing. There's this one promotional BTS behind-the-scenes featurette which has Thandi Newton and he's describing the making of the action scenes in the film. And she says, it's like dancing. And that's exactly it. Of course, this is like an official featurette which usually is self-congratulatory and just one-sided and lies and boring. But what she says there, it's absolutely true. This, this movie is dancing. All of it is dancing, in fact. It's the dance of the visuals from Jeffrey L. Kimball with obvious assistance from our site DP, Mr. John Woo. God bless you. And then the editors, Christian Wagner and Stephen Kemper, they are working with Hans Zimmer's God Dear soundtrack here. In Symbiosis, as I said to you in our posts, and John Woo's playful action sense in the in the action scenes all all of them coalesce and that is the point the audiovisual triumph it it's not about the plot it's not so much about even what the characters do in my opinion it's about making the film extremely pretty sexy and fun 
yeah, I don't know about fun. I do kind of like see see your point about dancing. I mean, you know, we are talking about Mission Impossible 2. You can't be without seeing the point about dancing because it's the movie that actually uses dancing to frame its shots in an overtly and completely unnecessary difficult manner. But, you know, hey, that's John Woo for you when he's absolutely at his worst behavior. And also when he has apparently seen Mask of Zorro, which proved to you that, that flamengo is, is really sexy dance. Yeah, sexy dance and uh, there's flamengo in the soundtrack. This movie has plenty of colors. There's a focus on oranges and reds and there's blues in the biocide and there's greens. And and that flamengo, flamengo scene in the first act. Goodness me. Oh, God. Goodness me. Stunning, stunning material. Sexy without it's, it's, showing I, I'm, sex. I'm, I'm, willing, I, I'm willing to give you that it, it's stunningly complex scene. But, but this, that's about it. Like, it's once again, it's it's John Woo. It's John Woo just flexing out that he can plan out a complex shot. Well, and I knows. do give it to the man. It is complex, yeah. So what? And John Woo goes, well, what, what, what do you mean, so what? It's extreme. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think this is a technique that is popularly used in, when directors want to have some kind of a highly stylized scene. There's something kind of a mundane going on. There's two people meeting and having eye, eye contact. If this would be some other director, you know, it would be just two people making eye contact. But here we have something happening in the background, you know, you make the scene interesting by ha having all these moving visuals around around you. Like making a scene where you have a cell phone call, it would be absolutely boring, at least in a certain type of film, like action film probably, if these people are just standing by their desk and not moving a muscle. But when they are making the phone call from a motorbike or what have you, when there's movement in the scene, somebody is being shot <laughs> in the scene, whatever. That makes the, the scene more entertaining. I kind of disagree with that. I do think that it is the context of the mode, the call that defines exactly how mm -hmm. exciting it's going to be. Like it can be a boring ass scene, but if the material, if the information of the call is really important, then, you know, that it's go going to carry, it's going to make the scene exciting. However, if the, mo the mobile call is just completely random ass bullshit and the chase scene on motorbike is complete random ass bullshit and there are some bullshit gunfights none of that is actually gonna make it any more interesting you just have bullshit upon bullshit you have a bullshit sandwich it's still gonna stay taste like bullshit yeah of course there's wrong ways to go about it but you know there's millions of configurations how to go about it you, you remember our specter episode where there is this god awful scene where we are driving the what Lamborghini Ferrari of the baddie and then, then Bond in his car and they're driving in the yeah. empty streets <sighs> and then there is one called the Money Penny and we see some of Money Penny's sex life and he, her taking stuff from her uh, you know uh, fridge but this 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 whole fridge scene it's coming at the wrong point of the film but the fact that the character is doing something during the phone call makes it more alive and you get a little bit of a glimpse of into the life of the character while she's doing the phone call so it's not just a phone call but something about the character at the same time which is which is great at the same time though 
we both hated that scene in Inspector. Uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah. And, you know, at, at least it gave you a glimpse into the life of some character in here during the dancing scene, well, you actually get none of that. The actual context of the scene basically is is nothing. But, you know, I, I tip my hat to the technical skill here. It's there because of substance. What substance? It's one glance. Except, of course, to show you a tricky shot to be pu- being pulled off. Okay, that's that's one. And I would say substance, I come back to it in a moment. And to establish the, the romantic relationship between these two characters. John Woo here is, in his mind, he's, he's doing a romantic film, first and foremost. Yeah, so. most likely, yeah. And because it's John, John Woo, but actually, I don't know who to blame for this. John Woo or, or Tom Cruise, who has to be the maximum man, or the scriptwriters. But goddamn, somebody is responsible for the fact that the big falling in love here happens when Ethan Hunt tries to kill Maya in a car crash. No, it's part of the it's part of the dancing. <laughs> it's it's part of the dancing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I get get your point. That dancing being the big framework around which all the action happens in this movie. But at the same time, it's part taken from Golden Eye. And as a mm. as a moment in the film, it's kind of nonsense. You have the golden eye chasing going on, almost killing killing Maya, and that being the hardest thing that has ever happened to you. Yeah, but she it... hangs hangs for, from the cliff and looks at Ethan's eyes and is, "My God, Mister Hunt, thank you for nearly killing me. I am already wet." Precisely, because. If you want the direct quote from John Woo, this scene is where Hunt and Naya are making love. <laughs> yeah, if you if if you want a direct quote from Tandy Newton, she absolutely hated the, her her time and the on the movie. I haven't heard that one at all. I have heard one comment about one scene where Tom Cruise was a little bit tense about getting everything right, so she was a bit terrified on that particular day. Well, she has uh, kind of she has expanded that into more all-around comment about okay. Tom Cruise just being incredibly tense, and that being somewhat terrifying. Yeah, I can understand that. There's a lot of on this guy's shoulders, but anyway, yeah, that's that's the purpose of of this thing. I didn't even really think about Goldeneye before. Somebody said, "Yeah, this is a copy of Goldeneye." Well. Everything with spinning cars, I guess, is a golden eye copy now. But I haven't heard any official comment, of, obviously, on that. That hey, hey, we took this from from golden eye. But this is well, a... nobody's gonna confess about it, of course. Yeah, but it's like a car dance, and I, I, in my mind, it also establishes the reckless nature of both of these characters, and therefore, sex happens. Yeah, they're very much the same, Henrik. Yeah, of course, if you don't plan your sex at all. At which case, also a rape can happen. Okay, let's not go there. But yeah, so you may have whatever arguments against the film that you have, and I believe it's it's not about what you you know usually consider an action film that it's it has to be about the characters or or the story. I think. What, what about the action? Really, there's surprisingly little of action set pieces in this movie, which is. An action movie made by a famous action director. 
Yeah, okay, interesting claim. Hmm. I felt... Well, how how many... Exactly how many action set pieces can you name from this movie on the tip of your hat? Five. Okay, and those would be which ones? Okay, you have the action scene in the plane. There's the one with the spinning cars, if you count that in. Fight at the biocide, fight at the Ambrose's lair, and then the follow-up uh, scene with the motorcycles. And I would count kind yeah. of a separate uh, actual final fight with the fists. I guess not yeah. not as much action as in some f- action films. Yeah, but there's also some comments about this film that there's too much action. <laughs> so. Yeah, I most definitely, I'm not gonna make that claim against the movie. For my end, I don't really count the, count the first two action scenes. The the whole plane heist thing actually really that not that much happens. It's just your James Bond opening. Everybody falls asleep, me included, and then the plane just crash. Kind of the same thing with, you know, with a, with a car thing. Much like in Golden Eye you don't actually count that as a major action set piece of that movie. I don't count it here. In my opinion, like we have Max Three, which which would be like like you mentioned, the Biosite and Process Layer, and then depending on your taste, you can count the the final fight. Either with the Ambrose Layer action set piece, since it's a continuation, for, a direct continuation from that set piece, or you can count it as its standalone individual set piece, because it's just Ambrose and Ethan Hunt. But even with that, we get into max three action set pieces in a two-hour film, which originally was three and a half hours, which once again kind of begs the question, exactly what was cut from this movie? More shots of Ethan Ambrose just, I don't know, camping in their respected houses, because that's where they spend most of their time. That's a very, very interesting question, Uh, by the way, released the WooCut. Even if you look at the film's original trailer, you see some shots that are not in the film. There's one shot where, in the aforementioned flamingo scene, Ethan is... Speaking to to Thandie Newton's character Naya there, saying something like, "Do you know who I am?" And Naya goes, "No, should I?" Would be kind of tremendous if they actually deleted an entire action scene from the film. But what is actually the problem here? Are we kind of questioning the the whole merit of an action movie title for the film? Or should it be yeah. uh, like a thriller? In, in my opinion, it can be boxed into action movie if it wants to. can call itself an action movie. By all means, go ahead. My, my biggest problem is that like it's kind of boring. It really is a dull movie. Wow. It's, it's two guys hanging around in their houses with their henchmen. And that's mo- most of the movie. And this is, like you point out, this is supposed to be from some type of action god director John Woo. Everybody always th- uh, talk when they talk about John Woo. They always think about Hard Boyd and mm. and the Killer yeah. and perhaps Better Tomorrow. Yeah, John Woo is this director of of, of you know Bullet Ballet. He's the one who makes the he he cre- has the, has the bullet dance. Gunfights are are acts of dance. We, we talk about that. We also talk about the, the, the bloody nature of John Woo's action. 
guy empties his clip into other guy's chest and you have the blood spatters going on. And about the destruction. We, we always talk about like, like the hard boy, the hospital shootout. Mm. So you didn't get that, so now you're complaining that this is not the same deal. I'm asking what exactly is the John Woo touch that we are getting here. Because we are getting none of that. We are not getting the accents. We are not getting the the environment damage. We are not getting even the violence. We don't get the you know the ballet here really. John Woo, yeah, yeah, yeah. He made made it to tie it down into the music, tie it down into the dancing, etc., etc. But what he what what he did tie into the dancing is mostly just guys hanging around in apartments. It's not two hours of bullet ballet. It's two hours of something, and then there are three accents. Yeah, it's a combo of things. You get some love triangle things here combined with the with the action beats and the distinct. So what 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 is the action guard Chan Wu doing here? Why is he here? Well, he's. It's obviously a question that the production company asked. When they lock the doors. Well, certainly the most of the action is at the end. And, I, well, I don't have a problem with that. But when we finally get there, then it's all in. It's There's this crazy, uh, you know, sliding with your, with your boots while you're on the side of the motorcycle and shooting the baddies with 15 different guns and blowing up shit all over the place. That's yeah. great stuff. It's extremely cringy stuff. No. Really posery, try-hard stuff. Where, and I guess this is a problem from the fact that there were, in the end, so few action scenes. Like, because because we only have three or two, depending on your count, that the fi- film feels this this necessity to, to somehow complement the few action scenes that it has. So you have Ethan Hunt doing badass things for... Mm-hmm. No reason mm-hmm. at all. He well, he does tactical somersaults because you know that's plus five tactical points. He's being shot by the bad guys, but he stops his movement and ducking for cover to pull out the sunglasses because that is plus five badass points to you. He does the completely unnecessary and absolutely dangerous. Like bad guys just drive you over. I'm just cruising with my, the front tire of my motorcycle stunt because you know five points to technicality or or something. Yeah, but you're kind of looking looking at all all, all this tryhard cringy bullshit, and you're asking why, why, why? And I guess because there were so few action scenes. So they had to try to somehow complement the action they had. I still ha- have to perhaps better frame what my argument, my point is in how to view this film, how to actually enjoy the film. Say it like you want to leave your brain at the popcorn stand when you go to the theater. Okay, you can take it like that. But I would say, I would dare to say that this is the only movie in the franchise where Cruz's idea of changing the director in every movie actually translates into some kind of distinct style, a very distinct style, in fact. Certainly when you go Rogue Nation onwards, I don't see a huge stylistic difference like I see in 1, 2, 3. So when someone says that MI2 is style over substance, I'm not hearing you, man. 
because substance is the style and that's what I'm getting at. Yeah. So when when you see these ridiculous scenes, you call them cringy as fuck and it shouldn't be there. And why is this character doing these things? And what if it's not the, the right framing? What if the character does those things because it's entertaining to look at? Never mind if that would be possible in real world. Never mind if that would be cringy in a film that would actually take itself seriously. I don't think MI2 takes itself seriously. I think it's just that what you see is fun to look at. Well, that's just the thing, you know. What's fun to look at is an individual taste question, much like, you know, Brenda Palmer's style in the first one was a matter of taste. It may speak to you. And in that case, you know, okay, go for it. To me, it's cringy as hell. We have been talking about Finnish underground and, and amateur cinema in, in mm. the past. And you have voiced out your concern that you don't really like it because it's they, they are basically just copying American movies. And they, they because they are teenagers, they try to do this, this cool shit there. Mm. I mean, I cringe at times when I watch Finnish amateur movies. <laughs> as you should. Yeah, but, but here I am watching... Tom Cruise doing the exact same shit, and I guess still thinking that they are cool as fuck. Uh, we're in uh, in the tricky waters. Yeah, this is this is just back and forth with saying basically, you like candy, I like popcorn. Well, you you like you like locations. That was something in the previous in in our previous episode. You you want locations in your movie. Well, we certainly have movie. that here. Yeah, you have Australian suburbs and more Australian suburbs. Like usually in spy movies, the bad guys drive black SUVs or something like that. But in here, <laughs> it's driving Hondas. It's like, what are you doing, man? Luther so- shows up just so that he can, he can, you know, walk in Gucci shoes and step in shit. That was a good joke in Phantom <laughs> Menace, I guess. <laughs> and then we have all, all the all the the martial arts stunt stunts from Tom Cruise, who obviously like is not a martial art arts guy. Well, but still manages to make it look like a beautiful dance between two characters. Not at all. You can clearly see the seams here, where they try to make an actor who is not a martial artist into a martial artist. It's kind of the same thing that they, the same problem that they had to deal with in 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 the Matrix, but where the Matrix actually formed its its cinematography and its entire structure around the fact that it knew that Keanu Reeves is not a martial artist and Hugo Weaving is not a martial artist. That they built the, the whole camera trickery and everything around to soothe that fact. Well, yeah, different things for different folks. But coming back to just what it, what is great and the locations you were saying about the locations. Yeah, now we have pretty well established locations. Before we go to these aforementioned locations, we are actually shown when we go into these locations. We chop from top of a roof and even the... It's kind of a nice back and forth shots when we have... Ambrose explaining that, yeah, Ethan will absolutely do it this way and we will do it the more harsh way. We go from the lobby and we shoot everybody. There was probably like two more fuller individual scenes and then they were just kind of cut neatly together for this final cut. Uh, But yeah, 
we have a fantastic uh, cinematography and uh, we have uh, the symbiotic cutting with the with the music. I think this is a really great reason why these, well, few as they may be, the action scenes work fantastically well. Well, the cutting in the action scenes can work. I would say for action action scenes it. action scenes is actually where the highlights of the film will be, right? Yep. Just too bad they just a handful of you know highlights. Have you ever seen the movie uh, Notorious nineteen forty six? Because apparently the blood beats of this film are very much from from that movie. It's a Hitchcock film, early Hitchcock, where you have this thief and then the main character sends the thief to play these games with the other character because they need information or something of the sort. Yeah, I haven't seen it myself. And they have the horse race scene as well. Yeah, I do know that they do have a horse race scene. This is a hard film to talk about because it essentially goes into what you expect from the film. What what you want from your film. We're kind of on a really hard territory here. How am I to convince you that this is a great film if... The action doesn't necessarily appeal to you or the, or the cutting or whatever. Well, you can explain to me something deep about about the bad guy who is being told by his own henchman that, that Naya is a double-crossing traitor. Everything that just smells fishy, especially since Ethan Hunt is on the game. And Ambrose just retorts back that, yeah, you're most likely right, but I'm gonna ignore... All of that and all of your advices because I just she's hot and I wanna slip my mission into her impossible. <laughs> and he then proceeds to cut the little piece of the pinky of his assistant henchman. Yeah, which are also as a stud completely unnecessary. Of course, plot-wise, you know you have to set up and pay off. Ah, uh, yeah, maybe the weirdest scene. Why the hell would she do that? To your supposedly friend and your closest ally, what the hell are are, are you doing, man? Well, I, I I guess guess he does that because he's insane and extreme and dangerous. Yeah, right. But hey, great buddy, Duke Ray Scott should be second Jackie Moore of his films. Great character actor. I think maybe too bad that he, he didn't get to play Wolverine. Instead, did Mission Impossible <laughs> 2. <laughs> the, yeah. yeah, who's to thank for that one exactly? <laughs> yeah. Altogether, like, I, in my opinion, the quality of Mission Impossible 2 can best, best be seen on the effect that it had on its main stars. John Woo, the director, would never direct anything this big during his Hollywood tenure. Or Cruz, who would distance himself from the acting following this film for a while. Parvitz is no doubt due to his breakup with Nicole Kidman. Or you can, like you, like you said, you can w- look at Mission Possible's effect on Doc Gray Scott's career, which, like like you pointed out, lost the, the role of Wolverine to Hugh Jackman. Or you can look at the career of Fred Durst, who, you know, following Mission Impossible would never release an album that would be nearly as su- successful as was Chocolate Starfish and Hot Dog Color Water. And, in fact, after a few years after this movie, you know, Limp Bizkit, the band would go on a, on a hiatus. The franchise itself, bloody hell, would stay dormant and largely forgotten for the next six years. Could be, but let's keep in mind, it was a huge success in the theaters. 
And it didn't get it totally horrible reviews either. It was kind of mixed. Yeah, yeah, the reviews. I don't remember if the reviews were the harshest on, on Mission Impossible 2. And like pointed out, yeah, this did make a huge load of money at the box office. It made more money than the first film. And yeah. if I, if memory serves correctly, it also made more money than the third film. Uh, that is true. For Mission Impossible yeah. 2, it made 546 million. In the third one, 398 million dollars. Something that we still have to note here before we go is the climbing scene. Do you want to talk about the climbing scene of the film? I think it establishes mm. the character. It may seem a little funny, but I mean, it's a fearless character. It establishes that and then takes it from there. I think it fits the movie. Nice opening, yada, yada, yada. It basically is the similar type of insane moment from Ethan's part and why he was for sliced alone in opening of Cliffhanger. Like, I get, yeah, 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 you are extreme badass and you are fearless, but still, like, losing a life is a losing a life. I, I do appreciate the fact that Ethan, uh, that Tom Cruise made his own climbing, did his own stunts. Kudos to that. The follow-up of the climbing scene, the moment when the film once again wants to be extreme and has the helicopter flying over the cliff and shooting the rocket at Ethan Hunt <laughs> so that he can pass the, the sunglasses which gives him the mission briefing and then self-destruct not as a puff of smoke like the sea cassettes in the first film where it was just this small barely noticeable thing that you can just it was just a poof and it's smoke goes away and you can hide it in a, you know, with, with a bloody cigarette like Phelps does. In here it's a explosion! Big enough to actually kill fucking Ethan Hunt if he wouldn't ma- for any reason manage to get the sunglasses out of his goddamn face in time. Yeah, whatever the and... am- amount of flames, but it cuts into this stylish, heavily stylized uh, theme tune and credit sequence. Love it, love it. Yeah. Great moment. And also, also like, like even though I do appreciate the fact that Tom Cruise makes his stunts in these movies, I do appreciate the risks he takes. To, to kind of play with his physicality in order to give you the top-notch entertainment. But goddamn, what was the point with that knife trick? <laughs> okay. Oh my god, that's so dangerous and not very much needed. But yeah, he was actually... No. Having risking his own, at least I in that scene. Yeah, the the knife was held on a cable so that it would be exactly kind of like a few millimeters away from his eyelid. Crazy, yeah, crazy man. You know, yeah, uh, fine. You wanna have that moment in your movie? Go ahead. But why do it exactly that way? Because the way how typically these are done, especially when when Doc Greg Scott is is like like about to stab. Like he's on top of Ethan and he's trying to stab stab him through the eyeball. The way how it's usually done is that the actor actually pulls the knife backwards while because he's an actor he pretends to be pushing it downwards. Like what's the point? Except of course to be able to say that I did a crazy thing. Ulrich, in a random point, Ulrich is played by Dominic Purcell. It's his first ever role. Anthony Hopkins is here. Stopping by, kind of a cameo role. He wanted to be in this movie very much. Yeah, and to kind of emphasize the point from the previous episodes about 
things not being consi- constant and consistent uh-huh. on Mission Impossible films, Anthony Hopkins never shows up in the franchise ever again. Yeah, that's true. All right, give praise and raise to one actor in the film. I choose Tom Cruise. Yeah, I will go with Tucker Scott. And I could as well go with Andy Newton. What worked? Well, the action at times... I, I complain about the action being overtly try-hard and cringy, but yeah, there are moments that work. And the cinematography also at times. Like, I complain about the dancing scene being needlessly complicated just because, you know, John Woo wants to be complicated. But, okay, yeah, it's technically a really well-made shot, so... It's not a problem of the technical execution, it's more of a problem of overindulgence. What worked? A lot of things worked, the things worked that I already mentioned. What maybe didn't work is the <laughs> the whole attempt of John Woo to, at least in his own words, to make this a kind of a, specifically a love story, a love triad drama. And probably what what worked here for me wasn't what John Woo was trying to do at all. For me, it is very much 100% about this dancing. For John Woo, who knows? What didn't work, there are some dumb moments with the characters, certainly. Cutting cutting the, you know, nasty-looking nail right there, that scene. And sure, the Ah. film takes like one hour before it kind of gets going. Yeah, in my opinion, like when it comes to badly established or used characters, perhaps the best example would be the the taxi driver or the cafe or whatever is the third character of this Ethan's (laughs) team. What was his name? (laughs) Right. What was his function? Billy, played by John Paulson. Okay. Yeah, helicopter pilot, says Wikipedia. I do kind of have to agree with you on that dancing not exactly working i can understand or i can i can see what wu was trying to do here but to use 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 as an example this movie's big heist scene it's the langley again except without all the other in-room tricks but you have like a huge height and ethan has to use a rope to land himself in in langley they they just lower ethan from the vents but in here they have the Ethan is hanging on helicopter and the roof have has rafters which are closed. Luther is supposed to open them. I, I don't know. Like Ethan could just wait for the five seconds for Luther to open the rafters, but yeah, no, gotta go. We gotta go. And he, thank God, the rafters open in time, and Ethan jumps all the way down. When he lands, the the whole kind of tension just dissipates because it's Ethan doing dance tricks in a quiet room. What do you think about the constant crash zooms on the people's faces? Those actually did not bother me. Okay, yeah. Uh, uh, I think these are some kind of trigger points where people think that there are some things that you just do not do. And when they notice those things like random crash zooms, then, oh my god, there's a crash zoom. You're not supposed to do that. Therefore, I dislike this movie. Well, describe the film in one word. My word will be miss. Dancing? Will this film survive the test of time? In my opinion, no. It already kind of suffers from the same fate as the previous movie. 
which is that from the studio produ- producer's end, there is a considerable push for you to be able to see the later later movies and not so much these earlier takes. I kind of get the feeling that Tom Cruise himself kind of just hopes that everybody forgets this one. They mentioned Mission Impossible 3 in, in association to JJ, but who mentions Mission Impossible 2 in association to John Woo? I, I hear The Killer and Hard Boiled, but not Mission Impossible 2. And what did Cruise, when did Cruise do anything for this film? Yeah, could be, could be. Well, this film survived the test of time, as once again the virtue of being part of this multi-billion dollar franchise. Yes. Complete the sentence, please. You really know you're watching MI2. When? Well, I usually, usually, you know, I, I use use this quickie to just pass off as some some type of a nonsense joke. This time, I promise you, I'm I'm being I'm giving you a serious answer. You know, you are really watching Mission Impossible 2 when you are watching a Finnish underground cinema made by teens. Then all of a sudden, Limp Bizkit starts to scream into your ear, and you realize that you are actually watching a 125 million dollar seriously made movie made by adults. <laughs> you know, that, that's one thing. At the turn of of that century, this type of filmmaking was quite prevalent. I think there was a industry pressure of oh my god it's going to be the 2000s we need to change everything everything has to be faster more speed more action more explosions the result was an unfortunate film in this case die another day and things like mission impossible 2 yeah i kind of see mission impossible 2 like like when we talk about die die another day i made the case that that film clearly Obviously, is the answer to Vin Diesel's Triple X. Mm-hmm. I kind of always see Mission Impossible 2 as a proto Triple X. Kinda, it it has not the same but similar type of DNA. Yeah, you really know you're watching MI2 when everything you have heard about this film is opposite to what you think about the film. Even up to the soundtrack, not only Hans Zimmer's soundtrack, but even when I consider that Metallica's I Disappear is one of the best songs from this diseased band that ever came up. It's the one of the laziest and worst songs that Metallica ever did. Metallica, which usually is able to, to have like a, two tones in their songs. Here they have maybe three, so points to that. Well, points to Metallica actually making a song that somehow ties into the movie. Unlike Lip Bitskit, who just sings about himself, how he's so dangerous because he's so straight and gives no shit. And to finish my extremely rambly answer to this question, yeah, you take all of this into account and you're like, now I know why you want to hate me. All of you. I will defend this film to my grave. <laughs> you perhaps will be the handful of individuals who will keep defending this uh, defending this film. But at the same time, actually to me that the Limp Bizkit song turn around best exemplifies <laughs> the atmosphere that this film has. 
everybody else is at wrong. I'm edgy and extreme and you are all stupid. You hate me <laughs> because I'm not part of the machine, man. I actually don't really like the Limp Bizkit song. Well, did you like the film? Yes, I did like the film very much. Thank you. Fuck no. Would you ever rewatch? Not if I can help it. Sure. I've been avoiding this film successfully for years. And all of a sudden you showed up. <laughs> uh, I think I need to watch this film every now and then. Would you recommend the film? Yes. Yes. No. But I do recommend showing it to others. Especially if they haven't like seen Mission Impossible movie or John Woo movie before. If you have a friend who's never seen John Woo film, but always kind of wants to know what John, these John Woo guys are all about, you know, pop in Mission Impossible 2, and then tell John Woo all about it. Let him know that you have shared his art with other people. Now, you can, you can take it from me, because I had a friend who, who hadn't watched Mission Impossible movies, so I, I showed him the Mission Impossible 2, and then, you know, like, I, I didn't manage to find John Woo, but I did manage to find Tom Cruise's publicist. So I, of course, being the man of the people that I am, decided to do the good thing. You want, you have said that you want that this podcast would branch out, so I did it. I sent a postcard to Tom Cruise through his publicist, <laughs> in which I wrote, Dear Mr. Cruise, I had a friend that has never seen a Mission Impossible movie, so I showed him Mission Impossible 2. We are yet to watch another film, <laughs> and so- signed it as, as as your friendly The F- Flick Lab podcast, and sent it away. I haven't yet heard back from <laughs> Mr. Cruz, but I'm I'm certain, I'm certain that, you know, those, those words will touch his heart. And if you think... If you are about like, oh, you mean-spirited asshole, you are trolling poor <laughs> Hollywood billionaire, might I point you that if you take that stance, in that case you are implying that Mission Impossible 2 would be a bad film. So, I did a good thing here. <laughs> you are welcome, Curry. Oh, welcome. All good, all good. All publicity is good publicity. Not, but I'll give it a pass. <sighs> you give it a glowing endorsement. Because I took this masterpiece of a film and I showed it to another person. Then I told Tom Cruise all about it. (laughs) And dear listener, thanks for tuning in. We would like to know if you would recommend Mission Impossible 2, which you have absolutely should. You can tell us all about it. And especially why the hell you would do it. Because it is an audiovisual triumph. Come on. And because this content is absolutely valuable, you should go and rate it on Apple Podcasts or share it with your friend or with the friend who just watched the MI2 in the next episode Mission Impossible 3 see you in the next one oh until then oh.